We're looking at uh, verses 12 to 31 of Mark 14, so I encourage you to have your Bibles open and turn there, and I'll begin reading for us. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is God's word. I've asked one of our elders, Ted Long, to come and pray quickly for our preaching of the word this morning. Thanks, brother. Father, as we open your word and as Adam teaches, um, our faithful pastor, your faithful servant, I pray that the Holy Spirit rests upon him. And that same Holy Spirit who is alive and living in all of us believers, Lord, that, uh, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our eyes, that we could see your word, and that that word would grow inside of us, Lord, because uh, you have entrusted your word to those of us who are jars of clay, but your word is living and forever. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ted. Well, in this passage, Jesus is preparing to observe his very last Passover meal. 
And I thought this week, I, I tried to imagine how emotional, emotional of an experience this must have been for Jesus as a Jewish man who would have observed this meal ever since he was a very little boy. And I wondered if he just reminisced about the times that he sat around the table of Joseph and Mary as a little boy looking forward to this meal that reminded him of what God had done in delivering Israel out of their bondage and enslavement in Egypt, how God delivered them through the blood of a sacrificed lamb, blood put upon the doorposts of their house. And I wondered if Jesus came to realize on this night in which we read of his life that he himself was about to be offered up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's really what this passage is pointing us to. Mark is helping us to see how even as Jesus is celebrating the Passover, Jesus himself is the Lamb of God that would be sacrificed for our sin. And his sacrifice would establish a new covenant, a new way of sinners being able to relate to God and be delivered by him from their sin. But this is a, a trying time for Jesus and his disciples. As we know, uh, everyone is out to get him at this point of his life and his ministry. In fact, we're told in John's gospel, in chapter 11, verse 37, that at this point in his life, the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So Jesus has a death warrant out. He's a wanted man, and he needs to move cautiously as he prepares for the Passover. So if you look at chapter, or excuse me, at verse 12, there is, that's the reason why the disciples ask him, where are we going to have the Passover? Because they know that they're going to have to have it in secret if they're not going to be detected and one out. Uh, and so Jesus has sort of pre-arranged stealthy preparations that he has made for his disciples to have Passover. Uh, he takes two of his disciples in particular, uh, we're told in Luke's gospel that it's John and Peter, to give them secret instructions that he has pre-arranged for them to be able to have one last Passover together. If you take a look at verse 13, you kind of see the covert operations going on here. He tells John and Peter, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Uh, this man was probably a follower of Jesus, sympathetic with, it, with his ministry, and it would have been unusual for a man to be carrying a jar of water. Normally that was what women did in, uh, in Jerusalem, and so they would have known, okay, this is our man. And then he says in verse 14, follow him wherever he enters Say to the master of the house, and this is kind of the agreed upon passcode, verse 14, they were to say, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. It's obvious Jesus is trying to remain secret. He especially knows that Judas uh, should not know the instructions of where they will eat Passover. So he sends just two of his disciples and entrusts them with the instructions. And so they prepare for there. And in verse 17, they have the, Jesus brings the disciples to celebrate Passover in this house that has been prearranged. And what we see as they eat this Passover together first is that Jesus' sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice would fulfill 
God's word. How shocking it must have been. Just imagine as they're sitting together, probably very lightheartedly celebrating this Passover meal, Jesus drops a bomb in the middle of the meal when he says in verse 18, take a look at verse 18, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Up to this point, Jesus has been instructing his disciples time and time again. He would be delivered into the hands of his enemies, but now he's going to shock them with how he will be delivered. One of them, one of the 12 will betray him over into those who will arrest him and kill him. In verse 19, we see just how shocked they are. They, they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? Is it me? Will I be the one? And of course, in verse 20, he doesn't quite answer the question, does he? In verse 20, Jesus says, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. He does not allow them to know who, but Judas certainly knew that he was the one who was going to betray him. We know from the preceding passage that we studied last time we were in Mark, it's already in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Now the question that may come up in your mind is, if Jesus knows that this is about to happen, if Jesus knows that Judas is about to betray him and he is about to be killed, why isn't he doing anything about it? Why is he just seeming to sit back and let it happen? Well, Jesus is about to explain to his disciples that what is about to happen to him is in fulfillment of God's word that had been prophesied long ago in the Old Testament scriptures. Take a look at verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus says, the son of man goes as it is written of him. Jesus understood that his life was unfolding according to God's purpose and plan foreordained before the foundations of the world were set. The Old Testament stated that God would bring Jesus as his son into the world to be killed as a sacrifice for our sin. And it's even prophesied that he would be betrayed by a close friend. Jesus understands this, and he embraces God's plan. Uh, Jesus was killed not out of accident. We, we, we go wrong if we think that the gospel story is just a tragic story, that Jesus was a good man, he was a great religious teacher, and oh, isn't it a shame that his life ended in such a horrific way. Christians understand that Jesus' life went exactly according to the plan established long ago, it was God's purpose for you and for me, for Jesus to be sent into the world, to willingly offer himself up as a sacrifice, to endure suffering so that you and I might be delivered from our sin. And I think that this is a great application from Jesus' example of embracing God's word, embracing what he knew was God's plan for him, despite the suffering that would come. When the word of God comes to you, what will you do with it? Jesus embraced the word of God despite the suffering that he knew was coming as a result from doing so. Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote when he comments on these verses. Sinclair Ferguson says, 
When Jesus calls us to obey God's word, Jesus summons us to nothing else but following his own example. We're not entering into uncharted territory. He has gone before us and proved that God's word can be relied on in the darkest hours of life and death. Have you ever been in a situation where you know if you're going to obey God's word, it's going to result in hardship, it's going to result in trials, it's not going to be easy? And the temptation that comes to turn away from God's word rather than embrace God's word. Jesus here shows us an example of embracing the plan that God had for him even though there was terrible pain around the other corner. But Judas stands as a complete contrast to that, doesn't he? Uh, If you take a look again at verse 21, Jesus warns Judas about what he is about to do. Verse 21, he says, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If Jesus stands as an example of embracing God's word, Judas stands as an example of rejecting God's word and stands as a warning of the consequences that come from doing so. Judas is receiving again and again the warnings of Jesus to him about what he is about to do and what is Judas going to do? He just continues to harden his heart to all the warnings. Instead of listening to the warnings, he sets them aside until it is too late. He absorbs the lesson too late. And of course, after he would betray Jesus, we know that he would realize that it would be better for him to have never been born. As Jesus is preparing for his suffering for the cross, we see he's embracing God's word in fulfillment or embracing the suffering to come as a fulfillment of God's word. And as they eat the meal together, what we see next is Jesus' sacrifice would establish a new covenant. Jesus' sacrifice would establish a new covenant. If Jesus' warning to them that one of them would betray them would have been a shock to them, I think maybe even more shocking is what Jesus did next as he reached out his hand into the basket where the bread, the unleavened bread of the Passover meal would have been, as he took it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said what he said. Take a look at verse 22. Shocking. I'm sure the disciples were shocked as Jesus gave the bread to them and said, Take, this is my body. Jesus here is taking the Passover bread that held so much significance for them as Jews, and he is repurposing it now for the new covenant. No longer will God's people look to a sacrificed lamb as the way that they will be delivered from their sins and their sins would be covered. But now they are looking to Jesus' body sacrificed and given up to them as the foundation on which God would deliver them from their sin. Jesus would be the sacrifice that would establish the deliverance for sin. And likewise, in verse 23, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it. They all drank of it. And then he said these shocking words in verse 24. He said to his disciples, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
as John read for us in Hebrews 9, blood was an essential aspect of sacrifices offered up to God. As we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood was how we were atoned, our sin was atoned for. Uh, atonement is the satisfaction of God's just wrath against sin. Just as we uh, sang in, in Christ alone when we sang, uh, as on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid da 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 da, da. <laughs> Jesus would by his own blood take on the penalty of our sin he would stand as a substitute in our place he would stand in our place to take on the full wrath of God that we deserved he would take it on himself so that we might be atoned for our sin. And Jesus here in establishing uh, what we call communion, the Lord's Supper, he is showing that it is his sacrifice, his body torn, his blood shed, that would be the foundation of a new way, a new covenant, a new way of sinners being able to relate to God. Not on the basis of anything that we can do but rather, this new covenant would be based on everything that he has already done. I love what Mark Dever says. He's got this great quote where he says, all the religions of the world are religions of do. Christianity is the only faith based on what is done. Jesus' sacrifice would be the foundation of our acceptance before God. And Jesus here, of course, is establishing what we call the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate this next week together uh, in our threefold communion. We encourage you to be there. This is a special meal that we partake of to remember what Jesus would do in his sacrifice of giving up his body and shedding his blood. It celebrates God's new covenant that he has established for us. And it points us forward to Jesus' work, his suffering and his death, his resurrection for us. And it also emphasizes our union with him as we partake of the bread, as we partake of the cup, and we, we drink it down, we eat it down into ourselves. It represents, it's a symbol of the, the intimate fellowship that we share with him in relationship to him and with one another. That's why we call it communion. We are communing with Christ and we are communing with one another as we share this meal, reminding ourselves that we are one in our faith and trust in him. But what Jesus says in verse 25 tells us that actually communion is meant to create in us dissatisfaction, longing. So what are you talking about? Take a look at verse 25. Jesus says, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The Lord's Supper, in part, points us forward to the perfect communion that we will share with Jesus in the future when we are with him in his presence. 
When we partake of the bread and cup, we, we fellowship, we feel close to Jesus, but we know that there is coming a day where our communion will be perfect. We'll be able to look him right in the eye. We'll be able to embrace him. And Jesus says, I want you to partake of this knowing that we will fellowship together in perfect harmony in the future. Communion reminds us that it is what Jesus has done for us that is the basis of our acceptance before God, the new covenant established in his body and his blood. It is all of our confidence. As we're reminded at the end of this passage, if, if you take a look at verse 26 through 31, we see that Jesus' sacrifice is our only confidence. In verse 26, after they sing a hymn together, they walk out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus drops yet another bomb on them. In verse 27, Jesus says to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus is telling his disciples, you all will abandon me. You will be unfaithful to me, but I will remain faithful to you. And after I am raised to the dead, we will meet again. I will gather you to myself. Now, which disciple is going to open his big mouth and make a very boastful and confident assertion? Of course, it's going to be Peter. After Jesus tells him, you all are going to fall away, what does Peter say in verse 29? Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not. I just think that Peter would have been a fun classmate to have in school. <laughs> oh, there's Peter again trying to suck up to the teacher. And Jesus once again tells Peter, no, Peter, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But what does Peter say? In verse 31, I love that Mark adds, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Friends, isn't that a picture of ourselves? We see ourselves in Peter and the disciples. How often have I woke up in the morning, spent my time in prayer saying, Jesus, I'm going to walk in faithfulness to you today. I'm going to walk in obedience we, we are so quick to, to trust in our own confidence, to trust in our own heart, our own faithfulness, to walk faithfully with Jesus. And about five minutes in, we fall flat on our face. Uh, many of you are reading The Pilgrim's Progress and Don Mills and Ted Long's ABF. How many of you are participating in that class? Uh, that is just a wonderful illustration of the Christian life. As you read that book, you're going to see that Christian has his high points and Christian has his low points. Christian has his moments of great decisions and faithfulness to Jesus. And Christian has his great moments of failure and disobedience. The Christian life is a life of ebbing and flowing. Where is all of our confidence based? Not on our ability to walk perfect with Christ, but in his faithfulness to us, despite our continuing sin, despite our setbacks, despite our feeble walking. 
one of my favorite hymns of all time, I love to sing it to Canaan when I'm putting him down to sleep, is Abide With Me. But we never sing the second verse. The second verse is so good. Um, the writer of Abide With Me says, Thou on my head in early youth did smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me, though I oft left thee. On to the close, Lord, abide with me. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In those moments in our pilgrimage, as we walk with Jesus, and we are prone to discouragement, we think, I've been walking with Jesus maybe for decades now. Why do these same sins continue to plague me? Why do I continue to not be as far along as I hoped that I would? I'm making progress, but I'm not making as much progress as I hoped. Why am I up? Why am I down? In those moments of doubt and discouragement, when we find ourselves like Peter, where can we turn? Where can we go for confident assurance that we belong to God and he will not let us go despite ourselves? We go back to the body and the blood of Jesus. We go back to what he has done on our behalf, the sacrifice that he has made once for all to cleanse us from sin, to call us to himself, to make us right with God. Where can we turn? Only to the finished work of Jesus. Not on what we do or do not do, but what has already been done. As we close this morning, uh, a hymn came to mind on Friday afternoon as I put the last sentence on my sermon manuscript. And I thought it might be good just to end by reading the lyrics of this hymn. How many of you know the hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done? All two of you, okay. You ready for the author's name of this hymn? Horatius Bonner. There's a name. Those of you who are pregnant, Horatius. Have that, have that down for your, uh, your, your son's name. Maybe even your girl's name, that'd be interesting. But Horatius Bonner gets so well that our basis, the basis on which we stand before God, is not ultimately on our own performance but on Jesus. And I want to kind of read this as our, for our reflection and a prayer before we sing our last hymn together. Uh, let me read these words. Horatius writes, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears could ever bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work 
save thine. No other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. We look to Jesus and what he willingly endured for our sake so that we might be saved and reconciled to God. Let's pray.